From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. She was studying alternative health practices among the 19th century British when the pandemic began in spring 2020. And soon, she noticed some similarities with what was happening in present-day America. Today, I'm speaking with Heiju Kim. She's a doctoral candidate in English and a teaching associate at Syracuse University. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Heiju. Hi, Amber. Now, your work for your doctorate focuses on medical liberty and alternative health practices in 19th century Britain. What were some of the alternative health practices of that time? A lot of them are still around, actually. Homeopathy, mesmerism, medical botany or medical herbalism, and what? vegetarianism was... I'm can, sorry, I ask you to, can I ask you to explain <laughs> what those are? You use some terms oh, yeah. that I'm not familiar with. Um, homeopathy was a, a practice that was invented by Hahnemann in the 18th century, and um, I think um, still a lot of um, even the you know medication medicine that's sold um, via pharmacies um, still have homeopathic label on them. And mesmerism, um, it's about the sort of um, cosmic forces, um, electric forces um, between people, and um, it's oh. less of a health practice right now, but sort of um, transformed into occult. I would say, and uh, medical botany or medical herbalism, it's using herbs and um, plants um, to cure um, symptoms or diseases. Um, and, um, you know, herbal tea can technically be uh, categorized in, um, in that sense. Um, and um, vegetarianism, mm -hmm, which was, it's, it's a lifestyle, but also it was considered as a health practice um, in 19th century uh, because uh, a lot of people um, were practicing vegetarianism, not only for moral reasons, but also for health reasons as well. So was vegetarianism back then the same as the vegetarian we may be more familiar with today? I mean, just basically not eating mm -hmm. meat, eating a lot of fruits and vegetables? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the definition itself um, is the same, but um, the word vegetarian was actually coined in the 1840s, um, though the practice itself has been there you know, forever from the ancient times. Um, but 19th century was the period when uh, vegetarianism became this conscious movement um, and was popularized in the Anglo-American world in Britain and in the and United States as well. Yeah. Was that for health reasons or, do, or were they opposed mm -hmm. to eating animals? Mm -hmm. It was both. Um, part, it wa part of it was moral concerns about animal cruelty and part of it was about health and bodily purity. And um, there was an overlap um, because um, concerns about bodily purity was, you know, supposed in the 19th century sense, um, it was about that moral self-discipline to keep your body pure by doing a vegetarian diet and also, um, you know, uh, resisting the kind of um, animal urges. And a lot of people actually thought that vegetarian diet can um, reduce your animalistic impulses, so um, reduce sexual um, appetite as well. Well, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I think your paper mentions hydropathy or hydropathy. Mm -hmm. um, what is that? Yeah. Hydropathy uh, was a practice that was established in Germany in the 1830s. And the central practice, um, central principle was uh, that cold water has a tendency to bring impurities out of the system. So they used various baths and wet sheets to saturate the body in water. And um, it's not around anymore because we now know that you know, just hanging in the water would not make you, um, you know, healthy, not necessarily. Um, 
but um, for people in the 19th century, help them to opt out of and stay away from harmful practices and treatments such as bleeding or um, taking calomel, which was mercury compound. Yeah, it was a, it was a safer method. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, how did this anti-vaccination movement begin? Were people mm -hmm. opposed to vaccination because it was new? Mm. Well, um, when we say anti-vaccination movement in 19th century, it is against smallpox vaccination, which was introduced by Edward Jenner in late 18th century. And when Jenner- now, Let me ask you, was, mm -hmm. was that the first vaccine? Yes, that was the first vaccine, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was something new. So maybe there was reason for people to be skeptical. Absolutely. Um, it was um, sort of viewed as um, injecting animal filth into your body. So that was really counterintuitive that that can make you healthier and they can protect you from diseases. Mm -hmm. So definitely that was part of it. Um, but also people... Um, you know, anti-vaccination movement became a movement when there were legislations that forced enforced people to have mandatory vaccination. So it was, you know, resistance against that um, compulsion as well by the state. Mm -hmm. Well, was there a lot of fear of smallpox during that time, though? Yeah, I mean, um, um, it was one of the deadliest infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. Um, but in a lot of anti-vax pamphlets in the period, um, the unnaturalness of vaccination was sort of under, um, deemed as more dangerous than um, smallpox, which, you know, is technically natural, right? Um, so it was sort of understood as this, um, the body's natural impulse to expel the impurities. Um, yeah. Oh, I see. Well, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Heiju Kim. She's a doctoral candidate in English at Syracuse University who has done extensive research into 19th century Britain, including looking into some public health practices during that time. So what were things like in Britain during the pandemic of 1918? Mm -hmm. Were there people who refused to wear masks at that time? Um, so... I mean, uh, almost a quarter million Britons died of Spanish flu, so it was definitely a devastating pandemic. Um, but at the same time, because people's attention were all drawn to the World War One uh, and its aftermath, uh, there were less nationally coordinated response to contain the pandemic and the virus. Um, so therefore, there were le less resistance to it. And then because of the war, there was this patriotic spirit that was around, um, which prevented people to, you know, actively resist public health measures if, you know, they if there was any. Well, what do you what did you think when you watched like modern day opposition to mask wearing mm -hmm. here in America mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all of the things that you were studying? Were you mm -hmm. fascinated by how similar they were? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, it just um, struck me as um, very similar um, in many ways. And um, one of the things that really um, got me was that, you know, of course, they were, you know, anti-vax movement in 19th century Britain and the kind of um, anti-vax mask protests that we saw. Um, they were both about, you know, the tension between the individual liberty and public health, right? Um, and in both cases, the proponents of the of individual liberty tied the value of liberty to the individual subject's national identity. 
So it was back then um, British and English liberty. And um, now uh, we saw a lot of, um, you know, uh, talk about American freedom, right? So in a way, the rhetoric suggested that it was more patriotic and um, actually better for the national community to pursue individual liberty than to follow compulsory public health measures. Um, so in yeah. 19th century Britain, which won out, individual liberty or public health? That's a really good question. Um, um, I think one way to answer it um, is, um, yeah, just if you look at the anti-vaccination movement, I would say individual liberty at least partly won out because um, uh, in the 1898 Vaccination Act, um, the a conscientious objection clause was inserted. Um, so it allowed the parents to exempt their children from vaccination based on their conscience. And the uh, 1907 Vaccination Act loosened the, the sort of qualifications around that um, objection, um, you know, whether that objection is authentic. Uh, so, um, yeah, basically in early 20th century, you can very easily out of smallpox vaccination um, if you want to um, for your children. So, um, yeah, individual liberty. How much overlap did you find between the people who were against wearing masks and the people who were anti-vaxxers back then? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, if we are talking about the 19th century, it's a little hard to tell because um, mask wearing was not a mandate um, in 19th century in um, um, sort of for the lay public. It was more in the surgical um, situations. Um, but... Um, what is really interesting, uh, I think, is um, smallpox um, anti-vaxxers um, were actually pro-quarantine. Um, yeah, that's surprising. Mm -hmm. But um, they uh, were pro-quarantine because they thought it was less intrusive than um, vaccination itself. Um, it was at least not piercing the, the skin, um, uh, the puncturing the skin. So there were that sort of negotiations that was going on, definitely. Did you get any feel for the type of people that were anti-vaxxers in 19th mm -hmm. century Britain? Were they men or women, working class, upper class? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did you find out about them? Um, yeah, um, the anti-vaccination movement in the 19th century Britain was definitely a white working class movement, um, um, I would say mostly. And um, it was a period when the working class people were becoming more and more politically active and they sort of it was there in their agenda and they framed um, smallpox vaccination as this um, state violence, you know, targeting the working class people by repeated fining and jailing. And one of the things that I really wanted to show is that they have the ability to self-govern, which means that the state you know, cannot tell them what to do with their bodies. And then they have the capacity and moral um, life to make that decision, unlike paupers or colonial subjects overseas. Um, so that was the kind of um, political movement um, taken up by um, the working class, um, aspiring um, citizens, um, the working class, yeah. Well, after studying medical liberty in 19th century Britain, do you have any suggestions for how to convince people to follow public health policies mm -hmm. or recommendations that could be applied to the coronavirus pandemic today? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, 
I mean, that's a hard question. <laughs> I might not have a very practical and direct answer to that, but I do think it's very important to um, not just not to just condemn someone who does not follow public health measures as um, stupid or anti-scientific. I think um, it is um, actually very um, crucial to understand that um, people are concerned with um, to what extent states should intervene with individual bodily matters, you know, about individual freedom in relation to this large scale public health um, state intervention. And these are the ideas um, that are not far off from the foundational principles of American society, right? Um, it's kind of shared value as well. Um, so like that um, conversation definitely needs to be taken seriously. But at the same time, that said, um, I think in the long run, I think it is um, also very important for us to um, sort of change that mindset that health is an individual property um, that health. I mean, pandemic showed us that, right? <laughs> Our bodies are very porous and um, well, we are part of uh, a larger social body. Um, it's not just about um, self. Um, so to understand health as this um, sort of um, collective uh, um, value um, as opposed to individual property, I think um, that conversation uh, needs to happen more and more, yeah. Well, let me ask you, how did you choose this topic for your dissertation in the first place? What got you interested in this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think actually my experience as an international student inspired me to pursue this topic because um, I grew up in Korea. Um, and when I first moved to the United States to pursue my PhD degree, there were a lot of cultural practices that stood out to me as very odd <laughs> and made me wonder what's up there. And um, my dissertation is sort of my attempt to answer um, the the kind of um, the thing I thought that was very strange um, um, here. <laughs> and um, one example is that um, I um, went to see an acupuncturist in Syracuse, and um, that was my first time to um, get um, acupuncture, and um, it was helpful. So. I went back home um, in Seoul during the summer and sought an acupuncturist there too. And the experience was completely different. Um, the technique was similar, the effect was similar, but um, the atmosphere um, and um, how people perceived um, that um, practice was very different. Here, it was all about that, um, you know, you were, re you know, sort of um, um, feeling your body, you know, having this individual space where you, um, have this better relationship with your body because body knows better. Uh, we have this meditational music that's um, in the background. Um, but um, in Korea, there were like 10 beds um, in the same room. Um, and <laughs> the doctor <laughs> of Korean medicine just, was just like swishing between these beds to apply needles. Um, and um, yeah, I was like, what? Yeah, what is going on here? Um, it's the same technique and people are, you know, getting something very different out of um, the same medical practice. And um, I had to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, did the current pandemic influence the way you're writing your dissertation? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. Um, I was, um, I caught myself um, using the words um, that were sort of, that became this buzzword in the media, <laughs> like um, community spread and then these kind of more um, technical and scientific terms that uh, were, you know, not really part of my lingo of you know, my literary studies, uh, definitely um, showed up more and more in um, my writing process. Um, yeah, it was, um, I mean, ironically inspiring, yeah. 
Well, I appreciate you sharing this with us. Thank you to Heiju Kim. She's a doctoral candidate in English at Syracuse University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.